Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and mental well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are friendly, tribal animals. And when we associate and live together in groups that are small enough where everybody knows one another by name, or at least by face, we are cooperative and collaborative. At the same time, we must acknowledge that a very small percentage of we human beings are predators, avaricious, greedy, and power-hungry. And it's the job of the over 95% of the rest of us to, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, be eternally vigilant for eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to have with us Kathy Reisowitz, Reisinwitz, I left out the end, excuse me, Reisinwitz, an author and a journalist. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Kathy. Hey, Richard, thanks for having me. So you're coming to us today from uh, the Deep South, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, as I recall. That's right. What's life? What can you tell us about life in Huntsville, Alabama? It sounds like a pretty scary place to live for me. (laughs) Well, uh, I grew up in Alabama and then moved to D.C. for five years and San Francisco for four years. So um, it's definitely in some ways a lot safer than those places. Um, And it's certainly a lot cheaper. Uh, And it's definitely nice to be in your family. What's the population of Huntsville? Oh, man, I should know this. I want to say, like, looking at Madison County, it's like um, 400,000. Oh, the, the Huntsville itself is that large? Well, Huntsville and the kind of uh, Madison County yeah. the suburbs. is hundreds of thousands. Oh, so you're in a very big city. That's a, I, I maybe don't quote me on that. Look it up. Uh, I may be wrong. But it's well over 100. I mean, it's a good sized city that you live in. It's and, decent, yeah. Uh, yes. And... um. A lot of your work uh, in writing has been on human sexuality. Isn't that correct? Yeah, my newsletter is Sex in the State. So, oh, oh uh, tell me about your newsletter. I would uh, like to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of a part political screed, part diary, um, where I'm just kind of thinking through questions of power. Um, what do sex and politics have in common? Um and so looking at uh, a lot of different topics from sex work, decrim, to uh, free speech and um, looking at the anti-pornography crusades, what I feel like is the new war on sex, um, to criminal justice reform. My current focus right now is um, a series on masculinity and um, what it means and how uh economic and cultural changes are impacting masculinity and um, native-born American men. And what's the name of the of the newsletter again, please? Sex and the State. Sex and the State. 
And do people pay for it or subscribe? How do they get a hold of it? So it's a Substack newsletter, and um, most of the posts are free. But for paid subscribers, I have a Friday Diary series that they can have access to. Okay, so if people want to check in with that, they can look up Sex and the State. And um, tell us something about your thoughts on what you're calling the new war on sex. Yeah, I just kind of noticed. So I um, was a sex worker in D.C., and um, I had quit for a while and then started an OnlyFans in, during pandemic. And so I started to pay more attention. I'd been writing about sex work for a long time, but just really focusing in on the ways in which the government was um, getting in the way of sex workers' ability to operate safely. And I realized that as the war on drugs was kind of ramping down, um, I believe the war on sex is ramping up. And you can see this in uh, rhetoric and legislation and criminal justice priorities. So I think that the uh, moral panic around sex trafficking and the increase in funding for uh, stings and quote-unquote rescue operations for human trafficking, which uh, by and large seems to only net um, adult consenting sex workers, and the various laws passed against pornography, the um, 16 states declaring porn a public health emergency, um, and the legislation like SESTA-FOSTA, which was passed in 2018, which purports to uh, end online sex trafficking, but actually just uh, makes life uh, more dangerous and more difficult for sex workers, makes it harder for law enforcement to identify sex trafficking victims, and curtails speech online. All this together, I kind of wrap up in in the, the phrase, the war on sex. Well, you're using the word sex trafficking and sex workers in the same paragraph, but isn't there a huge difference between sex workers and sex trafficked people? Absolutely. Absolutely. In real life, there's a huge difference between someone who is an adult consenting sex worker and a trafficking victim. But U.S. law doesn't make that distinction. Um, There is no recognition of adult consenting sex work in U.S. law. And so um, what you have is uh, organizations that purport that there's all this sex trafficking going on um, and law enforcement doing these raids and stings. But often, instead of finding uh, people who have been coerced into sex work, they're finding people who are just doing sex work and arresting them and forcing them into programs to try to uh, get them on the straight and narrow, quote unquote. Um, And uh, in some cases, for example, uh, with the case where the Florida massage parlor parlor where uh, Robert Kraft, I believe, was... um, was was found to be using this this uh, central massage parlor. <laughs> they find the women and the business owner um, <clears throat> instead of helping them, even though they were adult consenting sex workers. Because sex work in the United States is illegal. Because sex work is not illegal at the federal level, but sex trafficking is, and because federal law doesn't distinguish between adult consenting sex work and sex trafficking. So you're saying at the federal level, sex trafficking is illegal, but prostitution is not illegal at the federal level? My understanding is that sex work is um, regulated at the city level, generally speaking. At the city level. That's why some cities in Nevada have legalized sex work, and they can do that because it's not 
illegal at the federal level. Uh, to use the analogy of marijuana, there are many states in the union where marijuana, both medicinally and recreationally, are legal, but it still has been illegal at the federal level, so those people are in jeopardy. But you're saying that's not true with regard to sex work. It, it, it's, it's, it's legal federally, but it can be illegal and mostly is illegal at the local levels. Well, so there is, for example, like the Mann Act, um, which makes it illegal to uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, move someone across state lines for, I think, immoral purposes. Yes. Um, so that's a law, that's a federal law that has been used to prosecute um, sex workers uh, and, and people who are their uh, clients, mostly their clients. But um, otherwise, generally speaking, yeah, the analogy with with cannabis, for example, is different because cannabis to uh, own cannabis, to have cannabis is illegal at the federal level. Whereas, you know, as long as you're not crossing state lines, um, doing sex work is not illegal at the federal level. So where did you go to high school? I went to Sparkman High School in the Madison County, Huntsville area. And and then um, what, what can you say about attitudes that you remember towards sex at your high school? Um, it was not a particularly progressive, uh, environment as I, as far as I can remember. I remember we had sex ed, um, which was not, um, particularly medically accurate and it was certainly not comprehensive. Um, and I remember there was a poster on the wall with, uh, a, a drawn depiction of exactly how anal sex is, uh, particularly conducive for contracting HIV. And so they had actually like drawn semen and drawn anal tears. Um, it was a very fear-based, uh, curricula. And, um, yeah, I think the attitudes were, I mean, uh, the deep South, especially where I grew up in Alabama is very evangelical. So I think even people who weren't evangelical themselves, like still grew up in that kind of very um, moralizing, narrow idea of acceptable sexuality. Did you come from an evangelical family? I did. I grew up Southern Baptist. And so was the prevailing attitude, what year did you graduate high school, by the way? 2004. So was the prevailing attitude um, that it's okay for boys to have sex, but not okay for girls? Is that Was that sort of the classic, the way it was in high school? Or what was it like in terms of attitude towards premarital sex? I mean, the way I was raised, it wasn't okay for anybody to have sex, but it was expected that girls were to be the kind of custodians of sexual purity. So essentially like you couldn't really expect boys to behave morally. And so it was up to girls to maintain those moral standards. And were girls who had sex with boys in high school stigmatized or slut-shamed? I mean, not overtly in my social groups, I wouldn't say no. I mean, a lot of my friends were having premarital sex, um, and obviously we weren't shaming each other. I was shaming them because I was Southern Baptist and um, had, you know— grown up that that was the wrong thing to do. But um, it really depended on your social group, I think, uh, whether and to what extent you were shamed or stigmatized for having premarital sex. But certainly I was taught very explicitly that that was wrong and would separate you from God and would make you... I went to an abstinence retreat 
um, with my church, with my youth group. And, um, we used, I think, a piece of tape. Um, and you know, when you first roll it out, it's super sticky. And then we would stick it to different people and it was like, Oh, it loses its stickiness. And that was a metaphor for sex. The more sexual partners you had, the less able you were to bond with your future spouse. Mm-hmm. And then after high school, did you go on to uh, college? I did. I went to Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, a Baptist college. And di- did you graduate? I did. And what what did you um, what did you study? I studied journalism and mass communication. And w- were there prevailing attitudes towards uh, human sexuality at the college? Certainly. Um, so we had obviously boys' dorms and girls' dorms, and. If you wanted to have a guest of the opposite sex, you had to sign them in. They were only allowed during certain hours, and you had to keep a shoe in the door to prevent uh, any kind of sexual activity. Um, Having (laughs) sex outside of marriage was a values violation. If you wrapped up, I think, five values violations, you could be expelled. Um, I want to say being gay was a values violation as well. Um, Yeah, it was very... um, sexually repressive who kept track of the number of values violations i guess the administration i don't know i never i never got a values violation so then after college is that when you went to san francisco no i worked for four years in birmingham um i married right out of college and then i got divorced and moved to dc uh four years after graduation and spent five years there and then moved to san francisco in 2017. You mentioned earlier in the interview that you were a sex worker in Washington, D.C. So please tell us in some detail how you went from an evangelical <laughs> life, how you went from uh, a sexual experience being a demerit, and if you got five, you could get kicked out of school. Uh, how do you went from being one of those who might have stigmatized the girls who were having. How did you make the transition from being that kind of an evangelical person to a sex worker in the nation's capital? That's quite a story, please. <laughs> so we have an hour. Um, I'll try to summarize it. Um, no, no, we can go over if this is a really great story. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you be the judge, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, I think I started to question the church's teachings on sex when my sister came out of the closet. Um, When she was in high school, I was in college. And, um, you know, I'd been taught that being gay was, was, uh, you know, it was was kind of a hate the sin, love the sinner situation. Was it wrong to be gay? Um, Though I was taught that it was a choice, um, which never made any sense to me. Like, my sister definitely did not choose to be gay. I mean, she slicked her hair back as a like little kid and, you know, never wanted to wear girls clothes and always played the Ken doll when we played Barbies. Like she's, none of this was a choice. Um, and, but you know, I was taught that it was okay for me to find somebody, fall in love, get married, have sex. But for some reason it wasn't okay for her because she was going to fall in love with a woman. And I just couldn't see any like practical reason why that should be true. Like it just didn't make sense to me. And then I started to look into some uh, teachings on, you know, what exactly does the Bible say about homosexuality? Um, What are the other interpretations? And I just came to believe that these uh, teachings were really 
for a specific group of people at a specific time. They weren't moral absolutes, more universals. Um, and similarly, I went, I, I stopped going to church regularly when I was in college. Um, but my friend took me, my best friend took me to her church one day and we went to Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher said, it's okay for men to teach men and it's okay for women to teach women. And it's okay for men to teach women, but it's not okay for women to teach men. And I was like, why? And it was like one passage in one of Paul's letters in the new Testament. And again, I was like, this is not a universal moral absolute. Like this is a, Paul is talking to a specific church at a specific time for a specific purpose. And so that really like started the path toward realizing that a lot of these moral absolutes that I've been taught like weren't. Um, and then when it was time for me to get divorced, I really had to make a choice. Like, do I believe that these things that I've been taught about God, you know, really hating, you know, any sex outside of, uh, committed monogamous cishet marriage is more absolutely always morally wrong. And I was like, do I believe that enough to stay in a marriage I don't want to be in and don't think is going to, you know, give me the kind of life I want to have. And I was like, no, I don't believe that to that extent anymore. And so, um, I also became a libertarian when I was in college. And so when I started to write about politics, um, in DC, uh, you know, I got really informed by sex positive feminism, which holds that, uh, all sex is adult and consenting. Otherwise it's rape or sexual assault and that all sex is morally neutral. Um, inherently morally neutral. You can put your own morality on it, but that's your morality. It doesn't necessarily apply to me or anyone else. I understand. And so when I combined my libertarianism with my sex positive feminism, I was like, oh, like sex work should be legal is what I thought at the time. Um, and I went to Berlin and I saw legal sex workers and they seemed, you know, to be healthy and thriving. And I thought, you know, this, this, we should legalize it. So I wrote for the daily beast about why we should legalize sex work. This was in like 2013. And, um, then a bunch of sex workers wrote me and they were like, no, we want decrim because, uh, legalization involves a lot of regulatory capture and, uh, and things we don't want. Um, but yeah. And then I was also, uh, really sexually curious and, you know, I was having, I was polyamorous at the time and having a lot of partners. And I remember one time my mom was like, well, if you're going to whore around this much, you should get paid for it. And I was like, your mother you know, said that. <laughs> she wasn't being literal, obviously, but I took it. She says, she often says you're very literal. And I, I guess I am. Right. But, um, and so, you know, I, I was like, what really is the difference between, you know, someone taking me out to dinner with the expectation of sex and giving me cash? Like there's no moral difference. Um, there's no legal difference. Actually sugar babying is, is legal. Um, and so I started sugar babying in DC. So, uh Tell us in some detail, because people who are listening and who may be going to read about this are going to want to know, particularly when they identify with you, because there's a lot of public perception that women who are in sex work all come from terrible backgrounds. They're all poverty stricken. They drug addicts. They've been beaten. You know, you know all about that. Here we have a completely different story. We have a young woman who comes up from an evangelical background. She goes to a good high school. She goes to a good college. She graduates in journalism, goes to Washington, D.C., the state 
the the country's capital as a journalist is working as a gen, as a journalist how do you then make the transition how did you know what to say how did you know how to i mean you don't go to a few classes in how to become a sex worker i don't think and so in, unless you tell it did you have a mentor did you have a teacher how did you know how to give a blowjob how did you know i mean really how did you know how to do these things and how did you make that first transition the first time you did it tell us about it please yeah, I mean, that's a big question, but I'll try to answer it. First of all, I learned how to give a blowjob in my marriage. My husband taught me. <laughs> he was a very good teacher. Uh, so thank you. Um, uh, okay, so you got that part down. I got that part down. Um, uh, you know, and it is, it's so interesting. I mean, sex work is actually like any other industry, and I, I liken it to food service. So in any industry, pretty much, you're going to have a wide swath of People, you've got everyone from people who uh, own five-star Michelin restaurants to uh, best bus boys who are working to survive and support their drug habit. Um, it, it goes along income lines, class lines, all of that. Sex work is the same. You've got uh, sex workers who um, come from you know, much more privilege than I do, um, and you've got sex workers who come from much less privilege than I do. And so, but for me. Um, yeah, I, I never had to do sex work. I always, it was always my side gig. I always had a full-time job with health insurance. Um, it was just like, I wanted more money because, uh, you know, for all the obvious reasons. Um, and I always did side work. I always had my blog on the side. I always did freelance work on the side and I thought, okay, what is the work that's going to get me the highest pay for the least amount of time? Um, and uh, like I said, you know, I was having a lot of sex with a lot of partners anyway. Um, so why not try it? You know, if I don't like it, I don't have to keep doing it. And so I set up an account on, um, Seeking Arrangement, which is a sugar baby dating site. And it worked very much like online dating. You know, people message you, you message people, you set up a time to meet, you meet. Um, and I do remember the first time I accepted cash for sex, um, was, I was like, okay, I'm a whore now, you know, like this is, it was supposed to be a big deal and it was because it was supposed to be, but it was also not because it doesn't need to be like, it, it doesn't need to be vastly different to have someone give you cash versus a gift or a dinner or a ring or whatever it is. It's an exchange. And uh, the fact that it's cash doesn't make it fundamentally morally different than any other exchange. Um, and so experiencing that, it just, you know, it really, uh, hit home for me more than it had before that, that this was true. And, um, so, you know, it was, it was much more similar to non sex work dating than I think, uh, most people realize for me. Well, the way you describe it, it does sound very similar to dating in that you sound like you were able to vet the people before you had sex with them. So if you met them on the online, did you then get to meet them in person before deciding whether you would con make the contract? Yeah, I mean, totally. So for, so for example, with due respect to people who are overweight, if you've met a person and they were 340 pounds and smelly and hadn't bathed in four weeks, you had the opportunity to say, no, thank you. 
Is that correct? Or were you already so far along that you couldn't and you were stuck and you would have to have sex with them? No, I never had to have sex with anyone. I could say no at any time. You could. So was the procedure that first you met online on this service and then you arranged like a little interview on the phone or in person? How does it work? People do it different ways, but I would always meet them in public first and get a vibe. And in, a, then, in, a pu- in a public situation where you were safe? Mm-hmm. Yep. So then you had a chance to really feel the person and get a sense of whether you would be safe? Yes. Because that's one of the key issues, isn't it? I mean, isn't that one of the reasons that a lot of working women have what's called pimps or somebody to protect them because there is an element of males who are, who are vicious and dangerous and you don't want to be in a private room with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I would recommend that for non-sex work dating as well, to meet someone in a public place before you're alone with them. Um, and that's part of the, that's the main reason a law like SESTA-FOSTA, which uh, eliminated the, um, or at least severe, severely curtailed the ability of sex workers to advertise online, it makes it much more difficult for them to um find clients in a safe environment, vet them before they meet them, negotiate with them online instead of in person. And after the passage of SESTA-FOSTA, more sex workers died than had before. And a lot of them took their lives because they were having trouble paying their bills because they were having trouble finding clients. Um, And so, yeah. And what was the reason, clarify please, the reason they were having trouble finding clients because of the law? Right, because the law made it um, impossible for them to use some of the platforms they had been using to advertise. And so if you're a sex worker, you, you need to put it out there that you're you know, looking for clients and to connect with clients online if you work in, indoors. Um, and so sites like Craigslist Personals, um, Backpage, other sites, these were sites sex workers were using to find clients and negotiate with them and vet them. Well, they went away because SESTA-FOSTA made it extremely um, dangerous for these platforms to continue hosting these services. And so when these platforms stopped offering these services, the sex workers had to find clients out in the real world. And so um, they didn't have as much uh, ability to find them, um, as much safety in finding them, as much safety in negotiating with them as they had when they could use these platforms. I was told by a woman who was uh, was a sex worker. I interviewed her on this program. Uh, she was a sex worker, and then be, she became an online uh, a, a madam, and she would get the referrals, and then she would send the girls, and she would do the vetting for them. She did a lot of the work, and then she would make the appointments. And she said she went out of the business when the internet really came on strong because the girls could do their own advertising and their own vetting and so on. And I was led to believe by her that it's still going on now, that there are still platforms, uh, enough of them, where the working women can get uh, the uh, contacts they need. Is that not true? Is that slipped in recent years and they're having a harder time? I mean, information wants to be free. Like, uh, there will always be ways for sex workers to do this, but the platforms that they were using before, a lot of them are gone. And so it's much more difficult now than it was before for sex workers to um, operate safely. So let's get back to your own personal experience. In the first experience or the first few experiences, 
Were you scared or were you so confident of your vetting procedure that you knew it was going to be okay? Fear was not the main thing. I think the main thing was my feelings about, you know, is this bad? Am I being a bad person? Is this wrong? Um, I didn't, I never really felt particularly scared. And, you know, I had one experience in, I don't know, three years where someone stiffed me, but otherwise I didn't have any, um, there, there was no violence. There was no threats. There was nothing that, that was the least pleasant experience was just not getting paid. And I still got paid somewhat. I just didn't get the full amount that we'd agreed to. I gather you meant by stiffed you, he didn't give you the money. You weren't yeah. referring to his penis. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, what led you since it was an easy, uh, source of additional income, uh, what led you to stop doing it? I think for me, I wasn't ready to escort. Um, I was, I was sugar babying and sugar babying actually takes a decent amount of time. So the per hour rate was still probably better than a lot of other, uh, like, you know, freelance writing, for example, but it wasn't as high as it would have been if I had just escorted. And, um, it was also a little bit confusing for me because I wanted a partner at the time, but like, doing this kind of dating wasn't going to lead me to find probably, you know, a partner. And so, um, and lastly, it just was, um, kind of boring. <laughs> I, a lot of sex work, especially at the higher end is emotional labor. You know, it was me listening to these men and like, you know, hearing their stories and being interested and that was exhausting. And I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm going to get paid less writing, but I enjoy it so much more. It's so much more fulfilling to me. And so I just thought, you know, I'm just, I'm going to spend the extra time writing. The reason I'm laughing when you talked about the exhaustion of living to the, to the, to the stories is because I'm a doctor of clinical psychology and I've spent my whole career listening to those stories. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> and so well, I that's can, so different. no, not at all. I'm, I'm quite aware of that because I've been you know, I've got a book coming out called Sex Unveiled, and I've interviewed quite a few uh, sex workers and political activists. In fact, a, a very famous uh, pioneer in sex work, uh, pioneer in the recent era, was a good friend of mine. It was Margot St. James, who started Coyote. And, uh, and, and Annie Sprinkle, that you, Dr. Annie Sprinkle, whom you know of, is a good friend of mine as well. Uh, in fact, I, I've dedicated my book, Sex Unveiled, to the sex workers of the world because I, I feel very strongly that they have been uh, unfairly, very unfairly stigmatized, and, and we'll go into that. So, uh, and I, you answered my question somewhat with regard to, to why you stopped, but I want you to explain, because I already know the answer, but I want you to explain to our listeners and readers the difference between a sugar baby, and an escort. And if there's another category you'd like to include, please give us a description of each of those uh, working categories. Yeah, and these are generalizations. There will be exceptions, yada, yada. But generally speaking, yes. an escort is paid for her time. So you say, I'm going to spend an hour with you, and it's going to be $600 an hour. Or two hours is $1,200, or maybe I give you a discount and it's $1,000, but whatever it is, you're, you're paying someone explicitly for their time with the expectation that sex will probably happen during that time. But um, 
uh, legally speaking, escorting is legal in many places where prostitution is not. So you can pay someone for their time, but you cannot pay them for sex. Anyway, um, sugar babying is where you're, it's much more fluid. So, um, a lot of times it'll be, uh, paid per date or per month. And so essentially you're acting like their girlfriend for, um, and sometimes it's not even cash. Sometimes it'll be for gifts or trips or, um, sometimes just dinners. Um, but the idea is that you're being spoiled by your sugar daddy and that this is escorting generally, um, speaking, it's a one-time engagement. Um, sugar babying is the expectation is that it's an ongoing relationship. Then it's very clear with the escort, I'm hiring you for two dollars, uh, two, two hours. This is the fee. And, and, and if I want sex, I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. Mm, there's negotiation. It's, it's or, yeah. Negotiation about not the, told what's going to happen, but the negotiation happens. Yeah. A, a, a negotiation about what actually occurs. Right. Right. And I would assume that some of the uh, more sophisticated men, before they make the contract, make it clear about what they want and what they expect. And then the woman can decide whether she wants to engage in such or not. Right. Right. And let's not forget, there are male and trans and gender, gender nonconforming sex workers. But but most sex workers are women. Yeah. Y- yes, I know that. Right. That there are uh, uh, the others as well. So in the sugar daddy arrangement, a sugar a baby, rather, excuse me, sugar. There's a sugar daddy with a sugar baby. How does the fee structure work out if it's not by the hour? How do you end up not getting paid eight dollars and thirty cents an hour? <laughs> Negotiation. Yeah, I mean, you you set it up to where um, so it could be per month, and so then it's up to you. Like if they say I'll give you twelve hundred dollars a month, then you say okay, that buys you three dates. Um, and then you negotiate whether those dates are overnight or not. Um, and, or if it's a per meeting, um, then it's like, okay, I'm available from this time to this time. So in either case, you're, you're still negotiating. Um, but it's, it does leave more room open for, um, ambiguity. So, um, you know, if you, if you, if you aren't experienced and you say, okay, um, I will take $600 per date then that date could stretch on, you know, for a very long time. And so, and they may expect an overnight and you, you don't. And so you learn to be, um, to, to be clear and explicit, uh, or you have a lot of time that you didn't expect to spend. Okay. So in that sense, it's like any other contractual business. If you don't make it very specific and get into the details of what's being sold, you can end up uh, having a loss in your business, regardless of what it is. Or if not a loss, you end up getting paid so little that you wonder why the heck you did it. So yeah, you've got I mean, a, the best, the you, best training so got, for me for doing sex work was uh, doing freelance marketing. Right. You've got to learn how to build a contract. And if the average woman doesn't know how to do that, I see that what you're saying. She could be, in that particular thing, very taken advantage of. Okay, so... Then you moved on and let go of that kind of work when you, and you left D.C. and moved back into full-time journalism. Well, I was, I was writing full-time the entire time. What was the, but the journalism wasn't enough to pay the bills, or you just wanted extra? The journalism, your day job was okay, but you wanted extra money. Um, I wanted extra money. Yeah, I see. I see. So 
How long has it been since you've left the uh, the sex work? Oh man. Well, yeah, like roughly. Um, five to seven years. Yeah. Okay, that's close enough. That's that's wonderful. Um, do you ever miss it? Do you ever think to yourself, well, you know, why don't I just go do a little of this? I'll pick up a couple of grand and take myself on a vacation. Sure. Yeah. No, I think about it sometimes. I definitely do. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would be a lot riskier in, in Alabama than it was in, in D.C. in terms of, you know, notoriety or getting noticed or having the word spread? Is Probably. that a factor? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't want to. It's, it's like I've embarrassed my family a lot. I mean, I use my full unusual real name um, to talk about all this stuff. Um but yeah, I think, you know, being an active escort in a small town with, you know, where I share the town with my family would probably be more embarrassing. Um, but I think honestly, it's a matter of where do I want to go in life? And money is certainly a factor to get me where I want to go, but it's not the only factor by far. And, you know, I don't want to get great at being an escort. Not that there's anything wrong with being an escort. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's a wonderful thing to do. It's just not what my comparative advantage is. Like I'm not like an excellent sugar baby. Um, and I don't particularly want to be, I want to be an excellent writer. And so I just feel like it's a more, um, rewarding way to spend my time honing that craft than to, to do sex work for me. Does the name Paulita Papel sound familiar to you? You mentioned her when we spoke before, but I hadn't heard of her previously. I think I'll, I'll introduce you to her. I think you two would have a lot to say to each other. She also came from a good family, graduated with excellent grades from college, and uh, went into sex work pretty much as a political act. And then she became a, um, a, se a, a sex film producer and director with a particular niche instead of using actors and actresses as the porn industry does she is using regular people and depicting them having what she calls normal sex rather than the kind of sex you see in pornography and she started something called the berlin erotic film festival which has become very popular. I'll uh, I'll introduce you via email, and I I, th I think she's probably around. You're in your mid thirties, somewhere in there. Thirty-seven. Yeah, she is also right oh, in that nice. area. I think it'll be fun for you to talk to one another because you're both activists, and and it's the sex sex worker activists that have uh, you know particular interest to me because I'm an activist and I think activism is very important whether it's marijuana legalization or sex work legalization there have to be activists who who, who lead the way and and uh, that's why I have you on the program by the way because I want to give you a platform I'd like more people to know about your work and the work of the other of the other activists in the field okay let's talk about uh, move on now from your personal experiences to um, to some of the areas of intellectual interest within this uh, now now so I'd like you to talk some about uh, masculinity and sexuality yeah. take it from the t take it from the top <laughs> oh man there's much to say yeah I got into this um, I remember when I was first in DC I was invited to speak on a panel at the Heritage Foundation about the rise of single mothers and um, I was raised by a single mother and I 
was really surprised to show up on the panel and realize I was the only one not bashing single mothers for being single mothers. And it started me thinking about why are women, why are there so many single mothers? And um, I started to realize that a lot of the problem was the dearth of marriageable men. Um, That if a lot of the men um, aren't making enough money to contribute meaningfully to the household finances and time use surveys show that men, husbands on average do less childcare and housework than uh, their wives, even when they don't work at all. Um, Well, if you're not bringing home the bacon and you're not frying it up and you're not taking care of the kids, what are you adding to the equation? Um, and so what I realized is that uh, this, the rise of single motherhood is uh, very much a demographics problem. Um, and it's very much a problem of these women don't see other opportunities for themselves either um, outside of motherhood. And so then looking over the past few years, you know, we've seen a dramatic rise in um, men without work. And so this is prime working age men, especially young men who are neat. That is not an education, employment or training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I see is <clears throat> male uh, wages for the bottom half of earners are declining. Um, men are getting earning fewer degrees than women degrees are becoming more important for employment. Um, male labor force participation is worrying. And so unless these trends change, if we continue to expect a male breadwinner and there are fewer male breadwinners to go around, we're going to continue to see a decline in marriage, which is what we've seen is a decline in marriage over the past few decades. And so, um, I'm thinking, you know, What is it about masculinity that is contributing to or could be a solve for the problems facing uh, native-born American men? This joblessness, sexlessness, um, and uh, loneliness. And I think that these forces are also driving adverse political outcomes. I think the rise in extremism, in um, domestic terrorism in uh, authoritarianism, I think can all be directly tied to uh, these broader socioeconomic forces that are, you know, leaving men without a place uh, in society. Do you happen to know in the, that since there have been, a, there's a decrease in marriages, is there also a decrease in births? Uh, yeah. or a, yes, definitely. We're, we're seeing that as well. Yes. I, yeah. I, and I, Sex, I'm aware- marriage, and births all down are are all decreasing and obesity is increasing at the at the present time 72% of america is obese or overweight when i started this program about 20 years ago we were at about 59 or 60% it's gone up 12% in 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 less in about 20 years my colleagues uh who makes statistical probability uh, statements say that by 2030, at the present rate of expansion, uh, uh, pun intended, the um, 87% of the country will be obese or overweight. And I think there's a connection between that obesity epidemic, what I call an epidemic, which it is, and what you're saying 
about the decrease in marriage, decrease in sexuality, and decrease in having children. And I, I think it's a malaise of the population from, as a consequence of some kind of psychological oppression. And I think a, a great deal, and I'm interested in your opinion is why I'm going into detail here. I really want your opinion on this, Kathy. I think a great deal of the oppression is a re- result of the socioeconomic stratification and disparity because so many people have been pushed down. I read a statistic this week that when that 60% of America are living paycheck to paycheck. I think when you have that large a population living paycheck to paycheck, they're living in fear. And, and talk the men, for example, if the men who are bringing home the bacon are bringing home hardly enough bacon so that if they miss a paycheck, they and their kids and their wives and kids could be out on the street. This is tremendously anxiety producing. They must be living in fear constantly. And so all of these things feel connected to me. What do you, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, I, I definitely have thoughts on that. I, I think one thing that we see is that there's a very strong tie between obesity and socioeconomic status. So people who are low income are much more likely to be obese than people who are high income. Um, and I think that to be in the bottom half of earners in America is an extremely, um, precarious place to be that, uh, the cost of, um, the major purchases for American families has skyrocketed in recent decades. So that's housing, education, um, and healthcare in particular, huge expenditures there, the costs are going up. Wages for the bottom half of earners have stagnated. Um, And most importantly, probably, is um, economic mobility is down. So it's less likely today that a person born into a lower half family will achieve uh, top half income in their lifetime than in previous decades. It's less likely. Um, And so what you see a lot of in the top is this extreme anxiety of uh, high intensity parenting, because if our kid doesn't stay in the top half, their existence is going to be really precarious and it's going to be really difficult for them to ever uh, financially recover. And in the bottom half, I think what you're seeing is, um, is people in survival mode and people who are in survival mode don't dream. They don't aspire. They don't try Um, They just survive. And I think people in the bottom half in America are really just kind of surviving. Um, They're not eating to where they're going to live into their 80s and thrive. You're seeing an increase in deaths of despair in America. So this is suicides, drug overdoses, alcoholism. Um, I think that what we're seeing is that uh, life is becoming increasingly difficult for people in the bottom half of earners they don't see a lot of hope, which is why they're not having sex, they're not getting married, and they're not having kids. And it's because they rightly see that they've been locked out of opportunity in America, that it is really difficult to move uh, in your lifetime from bottom half to top half. And so they, they aren't trying. And these people you're describing are ripe for a populist leader. Absolutely. A, a, a big daddy, a great big sugar daddy who's going to take care of everybody if only you listen to me 
follow me and do exactly what I tell you to do and vote the way I want you to vote. And what we're seeing is that instead of looking at the actual forces that are keeping Americans out of locked out of opportunity, corporatism um, being the main one, uh, the populists are scapegoating um, women, ethnic minorities, trans people, uh, anyone who's not normative. They're the ones that are keeping you out of opportunity. They're the ones that are oppressing you. Wokeism is keeping you down, not corporations, not the fact that you need a license that's extremely difficult to get just to get a decent job, not the fact that credentialism means you need to spend four years going into enormous debt just to have a chance at a middle-class existence, not these systems. No, it's it's women and minorities. Women and minorities, and, and to a lesser extent, but certainly in the same bag, are sex workers. Absolutely. And there, of course, the hypocrisy is startling because those very same people are frequenting sex workers, as we well know. And, and I think that uh, hypocrisy is another a, a major uh, negative effect on, on mental health. Um, thank you for that. That was, that was a terrific response, and I appreciate it. Um, we talked some about masculinity. We talked some about the new war on sex. Have we talked enough about sex and the state? <laughs> Sex in the State is uh, an ongoing project. I really feel like it's my life's work. And it's to make the path that I took a little bit smoother and faster for other people. And so it's me learning in public. It's me saying, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm learning. This is what I'm, these are the ideas I'm toying with. If they help you, amazing. Um, I hope you get to where I am faster than it, you know, in in a shorter period of time than it took me. If it's not helpful to you, that's fine. Hopefully it's at least interesting or entertaining. Um, And my goal is to just keep learning. And so when people comment on my posts or email me about my posts and say, well, I don't really agree about this, or here's another piece of information that you should consider. Um, That makes my heart really happy. And to any extent that I'm getting people to think about things they wouldn't otherwise think about that can make their lives a little better, you know, that's my life's work. So let's take a pause now and give you a a, a little time to reflect on this next question. And that is, have we missed anything that's within your area of interest that you write about and you want the world to know about from Kathy Reisenwitz. Is there anything we have not talked about that you'd like to really uh, get out today? That's a good question. Well, that's why I said take a pause. I don't mind blank space or I can just chat on while you're thinking. (laughs) I would say um, the two things are housing policy. I don't write much about that anymore, but I was really deep into it my first two years in San Francisco and criminal justice reform, which I don't write about enough, but I follow and I'm very passionate about. But the thing that ties everything that I care about together is um, the concept of unearned power, that the ability for someone to say, you can't build apartments on a piece of land you own, you can't uh, take money for sex, you can't um, be safe from unreasonable search and seizure and prosecutorial misconduct, um, that is unearned power and it erodes a society and it, uh, makes people poorer and it makes people, 
stay in survival mode and it makes people live more boring lives and it isolates us from each other. And, and so that concept of unearned power, I think really undergirds everything that I care about. The sex workers I've talked to and interviewed and known over the years have often told me stories about how their children are stigmatized in school, how they're made fun of. Uh, Women who have been in the porn industry have told me what it's like for their kids when other kids make fun of them and say, you know, I can see your mother having sex on the internet. Some of their kids have been thrown out of schools because the schools haven't wanted to deal with them. Many of them have, have had trouble finding a mate, let's say the heterosexual uh, sex workers I've interviewed have had trouble because they're stigmatized because they meet a, a regular man and then they tell him that they were a sex worker and they, you know, there's too much of a stigma. And have, has that affected your life? And how has that affected your personal life? Like when you, are you single or, or married right now? I'm single. So wh- how does that affect? You go out with a guy and at some point, you're liable because in the name of being open and transparent, if you're getting close, you're going to tell them about your, your having done that sex work. And, uh, what kind of impact does it have or how has it affected, if at all, uh, your life? I think that for a person, I think this is true of most people, that there is um, the problem that you're going to have in life. This is what I told my, my friend who's like five years younger than me who was concerned about going to a BDSM munch, a meetup, because people in the business world might find out that they're kinky. And I said to her, you know, you're a a white, middle-class, extremely intelligent, beautiful woman. Your problem is going to be that there are too many doors open to you. Your problem is going to be that you're going to have to constantly decide which doors to walk through. And that any door that closes for you because you were yourself is a blessing. It's a blessing to not have that door open to you because it's less choice and you just go into the one where you're going to be welcome for who you are. And I believe that extremely, extremely strongly for myself. Anyone who would not want to be my friend, who would not want to hire me, who would not want to be my partner because I took cash for sex, I I want them to eat themselves from my life. And so... I've just been really open about my anti-racism, about my feminism, about my sex work, about my everything, because I don't want anyone who would have a problem with that to waste either of our time. Wonderful response. Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom from our guest today, Kathy Reisowitz. Reisinwitz, I left out the end, excuse me. Reisinwitz, thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It was an interesting and educational uh, interview. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I hope you listen in again next week at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.